Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last week on Sunday, we saw how Jesus overcomes the tempting power of the devil. As he does what we fail to do, Jesus was tempted in every way and yet is without sin. And we see that Christ has conquered our foe by fulfilling all righteousness and then dying for the sins of the world. He does not fall for the devil's tricks or traps. And then he indeed stands victorious. And in this, he effectively takes away the devil's only weapon. As Jesus forgives our sins, the devil can't drag us into hell. Jesus takes away the one thing that would damn us along with him. How could the devil drag us to hell as everything damnable and evil about us has been crucified with Christ? And so, how does the devil then choose to attack now that his weapon has been stripped away? He seeks our misery. He seeks to make life so utterly awful that we cannot imagine a good and loving God and a faithful and saving Christ. And in this, he desires to, to stifle faith and, and to rob us of all hope as life is met with difficulty and pain. And he'll do this in a few ways. One thing the devil loves to do is to make us so comfortable with the world and all of its wickedness that we see Jesus as evil for challenging the world and its wickedness, as the, the devil does not relent in driving us to sin. And that's why St. Peter teaches us, saying, Be sober-minded, be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so he will still tempt us, this devil. And the temptation is always towards the love of the world, which equates to love of self. Right? And when the message of Christ comes with its inevitable call to repentance and denial of the world and its loves... The devil will then come and urge on your sinful flesh. How dare God call you evil? Doesn't he know this is who you are? Doesn't he know this is your identity? Maybe this Jesus is not as good as he claims to be. So he gets between you and your joy and your pleasure. And so it is with much of the sinful world, they despise Jesus for the very reason that they should love him. As he takes our sins away, but like a toddler who fishes an old lollipop out of the trash can, they throw a fit when their heart's desire is taken from them. And this causes our flesh to resist the Spirit of God so that we don't want to repent and believe in the gospel of our salvation. Then, of course, there is the more direct approach that the devil likes to take. He simply likes to lay it on thick. He sees, seeks to make life so unbearable and painful and sad that we can't imagine a kind and merciful Savior standing over us. We can only see our misery so that the gospel of Christ is just unbearable. And this is more likely than not the case of the Canaanite woman in our lesson today. As the devil abandoned all subtlety and afflicts, her, afflicts this woman's daughter, as a, a demon severely oppresses her and attacks her, whatever that may be and whatever that may look like, all of this is to drive her into false hope, despair, and hatred toward the living God. As she lives amongst the Gentiles, 
this Canaanite woman and her daughter were most likely pagans, idol worshippers. And St. Paul rightly points out, he says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. And so, here we see that this Canaanite woman is living in a culture that worships the devil. They may not call it the devil, but they live in a culture that certainly worships the devil, as the devil has caused man to erect idols in the image of whatever creature they want to bow down to. The Canaanites worshipped Baal and Asherah in the Old Testament. Certainly the Greek gods are imposed upon that part of the world, along with the Roman deities that they all love to worship. And so in this they become the devil's playthings. And we see this, actually, more and more in our society, as the idolatry of our culture is not so commonly directed at statues of false gods, it still exists, as men still worship images, just no longer false gods but whatever image is on their screen. The celebrity, the professional athlete, the politician, and the people who are willing to sell their bodies or attention. And ultimately, the way that this is done is through wealth, fame, and sexuality. While we may not bow to their images and pray to them, I guarantee you, many still worship them in their hearts. And through this worship, Satan takes people captive. How many people have declared their favorite politician to be a modern-day Messiah? How many follow the words of really subpar musicians and actors with an almost fanatic loyalty and faith? How many obsessively look to their favorite athletes and sports franchises to give them comfort when their life is hard. The devil lifts up images and objects of worship to hold on to our hearts, to fill us with false hope, and deprive us of true comfort. And it leaves us in a state of misery and disappointment. It drives us deeper and deeper into our own sins. The Canaanite woman sees where all this leads with her daughter. As the devil's false promises have brought her nothing but pure agony. The devil oppresses her, not through subtle attacks and false promises, but directly. As his assaults make life nothing but pure misery. And yet as we see this, the Canaanite woman is not without hope. As she hears of the man from Nazareth, news of Jesus has spread from the Jews and to the place of the Gentiles... And her cries to Jesus help confess what she believes about him. And she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She calls him Lord. She calls him son of David. As her false gods have failed her, she calls out to the God of Israel. He is the Lord. He is the son of David. Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. King David's talking about the coming Savior, the Messiah. He's both King David's son and King David's Lord. 
He is God who has come down to earth as a descendant of King David, and her cry to Jesus shows her faith in Jesus. She calls him Lord and King. And that next part that comes, though, in our text can be hard for us. Because here is this woman in her most pitiable state and sorrowful position. The devil has afflicted her household. Her daughter is severely oppressed by Satan. She rightly comes to the only one who can truly conquer the devil. She comes to Jesus for mercy and for help. Her faith is right. Her need is great. Yet Jesus seems unwilling to help her. As he first ignores her until her cries for mercy drive the disciples mad and they beg Jesus, send her away. She's too loud. And then he tells her that he's not sent to help the Canaanites. These are the historic adversaries of God's people. And then he calls her a dog, saying it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here Jesus makes it seem like he's totally uninterested in helping her. He makes it seem like she's outside of his will or desire to offer any help to a person like her. He makes it seem like she's beyond his help and his mercy. And here Jesus lets himself for a moment seem uncaring and unloving. It's like he's saying to her, who are you and why should I bother myself with your problems? You're not a Jew, you're not a descendant of Abraham, and your false religions have been a stumbling block for my people for centuries. Now you want my help? Don't you remember Jezebel, your foremother? She killed my prophets. She drove my people to idolatry. And now why would you seek my help? Of course, this is not how the Lord Jesus actually feels about this woman and her troubles. We know that. That the Lord, the God of Israel, is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We know that Jesus has come as the Savior of the entire world, as he says in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. She certainly is a member of the world. She certainly believes in the only begotten Son of God. And so what is Jesus doing here? Why is he saying such a hard and difficult thing to this poor woman who is already so miserable? And the answer is he's testing and proving her faith. He's demonstrating that faith holds on to what is not seen. As it says in Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That faith doesn't depend on experience. Faith does not depend on what's set before the eyes. But faith believes in the word and the work of God in spite of what things look like. This woman believed that Jesus was the Lord who had come to save us from our sins. She believed that Jesus had the power and the will to send the demon away from her daughter. She believed it, even when the Lord seemingly ignored her, taunted her, and insulted her. And why? 
Faith does not trust in outward appearances and circumstances. Faith trusts in the word and the promises of God. It does not matter what it looks like or what it feels like God is doing to us. It does not matter how we feel about what is happening to us. God's word is still true. As St. Paul tells Timothy, this saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, because he cannot deny himself. You see, the devil loves to, to use our misery to stop up our ears and harden our hearts to the Lord and his word as he says, Oh, look at your misery. Look at your sin. Look how much you have failed. See how much sorrow you have in your life. See how much sorrow you have generated for others and yourself. Look at how unhappy you are. Where's God in all this? What is God going to do to you next? It seems like he just wants to be your miserable enemy. No, God doesn't love you. God won't help you. You're outside of his desire to help. And yet while the devil says this, and echoes this refrain from the world and from our own flesh, faith clings to the opposite. Faith looks to God and sees Jesus crucified for sinners and expects nothing but mercy from him. Psalm 119 says, This is my comfort in my affliction. Your word gives me life. So that when you are afflicted, you do not deny that the Lord loves you, but you trust all the more. When it seems like the Lord is distant and uncaring, when you pray and pray for one thing to happen, one bit of relief, one bit of help to happen in your life, and it seems like that prayer is unheeded, it does not mean that the Lord has denied you or rejected you. As we fall back on his word, which promises that he is merciful and full of compassion for us, for Jesus' sake. It seems like the Lord gives us nothing but troubles, but we are to see those troubles as gifts. Because not every trouble is a sign from the devil that we are hated. But our troubles are acts of love worked by our God. St. Paul talks about this in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not your enemy. God does not hate you. You have peace with him through Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Faith rejoices in suffering because it sees that even through our sorrows, God is working for our good. Suffering in this life builds with us greater hope in the gospel. It drives us to the mercy seat of Christ, so that by the power of the Spirit working through the Word, we might be strengthened for the life to come. Think of it this way. 
what drove this Canaanite woman to Jesus in the first place? It was her sorrow, giving way to hope in God's word. As Jesus seemed to ignore and despise her, she hoped in the word all the more. So that in the end, all she had was God's promise. There was nothing else to cling to. There was no other hope to pursue in this world other than Jesus having mercy on her. She could not appeal to anyone or anything else. She knew Jesus is all that she had. Sometimes God drives us to see this point most clearly when we struggle, when we suffer, when we have sorrow. As we begin to see how frail and useless all our other hopes in this world are. As our sinful flesh loves to boast about things, right? We, we love to list the reasons why God should reward me in our hearts and in our minds. And when we are in great comfort, when we're in prosperity, our flesh sees nothing wrong with the things that we are boasting in. As our pride grows and inflates, so that eventually we begin to see ourselves as our own personal lords and saviors. And so we go through life in this false comfort. We cling to our wealth or our health or our pleasure or our pride or our success. And where does this all lead us? Well, it's to the same place as the idols of the Canaanite woman. And so her idols brought her nothing but misery. Do you think our idols will bring us anything different? No. They will leave us just as lost, just as oppressed, just as sad and sorrowful. Her daughter was oppressed by a demon. Look at the many children in our culture. They are so deluded and misled by the many perverse lies of this world, some of them even believe that they can become animals. If you drink enough of the world's Kool-Aid, you'll find out that you become like the Canaanite woman. I want you to notice something incredible, though, in our gospel lesson. As Jesus calls this Canaanite woman a dog, she doesn't disagree. As Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, she responds, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What's she saying here? Well, the same thing that we confessed at the beginning of the service that she's nothing other than a sinner who does not deserve God's mercy, yet she believes that God is merciful for the sake of the man standing in front of her, even to dogs. She does not come to Jesus making a case of how and why she deserves his help and mercy. She doesn't come and say, I've been virtuous, I've been good, I deserve your help, come help me, Jesus. No, she comes knowing that she has nothing to offer her Lord, but he will help her anyway because that's who he is. She's nothing but a poor sinner who trusts in God. She has no other hope than him, and that should be you and me. As we come before God bringing nothing of value, he gives us everything. This is the loving disciple. And discipline of God. As he often allows us to see where our false hopes will take us, and his fatherly discipline, he strips away all the pride, all the false comfort, all the desires of this world, every little idol that we would erect for ourselves. God, in his love for us, tears it down. But he leaves us with saving faith. 
He leaves us with Jesus. As the book of Hebrews teaches us, and you have forgot and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The writer of Hebrews says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whose father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. In our suffering in our sorrow, in our trials, we know one thing for certain, that by faith in Jesus, God is making us holy. He's giving us faith in the Son who has been crucified for us. And he often leads us to a place in life where this is all that we have left. As he leads us to a point where our flesh can't boast of anything, where we're left in a position where we have no health, we have no wealth, we have no comfort nor friendship in this world. But all that we have left is him. And he's more than enough. That is what our epistle lesson is teaching us this morning. As St. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his spirit to you. What is God's will? It's for your sanctification. God's will is to make you holy. His will is for you to be set apart from the world and all of its vanity and, and false desires. What does this mean for us? Well, the will of God is good. And while God, what God sends us in this life might be difficult for us, according to the flesh, it is nonetheless great for us. It is good for this woman that Jesus, for a short time, seems like her adversary. And why? It teaches and strengthens and tempers her faith. It causes her to pursue his mercy all the more as her faith fervently holds on to what God has promised rather than what it feels like God is doing. And her faith endures the crucible and comes out stronger on the other end. Jesus finally shows his true heart and love for her as faith in Jesus always is fulfilled in Jesus. He looks at the woman and says, O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed. The devil was driven away. And this is the truth that we must cling to. Jesus does not despise our faith in him. As he promises that this faith saves us. And so what are we to do when our lives are miserable and feel hopeless? What are we to do when we feel nothing but grief or pain or guilt or frustration as the devil wishes to heap all these things upon us? What should we do in our lives when everything is falling apart? 
Well, nothing other than trust in Jesus. Remember that he has been crucified for you. As Martin Luther teaches us, that when we are overcome with sin and grief to remember our baptism, he says this, thus we must regard baptism and make it profitable to ourselves that when our sins and our conscience oppress us, we strengthen ourselves and take comfort saying, nevertheless, I am baptized. And if I am baptized, it is promised me that I shall be saved and have eternal life both in soul and body. Nevertheless, we are baptized. Nevertheless, we have the love of Christ. And not only this, God has given us a body of believers who will join together with us every Sunday praying with the Canaanite woman, Jesus, Lord, have mercy upon us. And as we gather, we hear that promise of mercy to us poor sinners. As we gather to receive together an ultimate hope as we eat and drink the body and blood of our Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Here we step away from the blind and false hopes of the world and we dwell in the life of the living Christ. As he is our only hope, he's our only salvation, and the only worthy object of our faith. As we come to the Lord Jesus and expect mercy, he gives it. He gives it because that's who he is. He is merciful. That is his eternal and divine character. It is to be merciful to those who call out in him in true saving faith. He cannot deny himself. He's not going to deny who he is. And so even as he helps the Canaanite woman, he helps you. As you face trouble and misery in this life, the Lord freely gives you his mercy. He will comfort you. He does forgive you of your sins. He does lead you into everlasting life. This is the work of Jesus. And he will do this because of who he is. He is the Lord. And the Lord is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Jesus is this Lord, and Jesus will do it. Let us pray. Nothing have I Christ to offer, you alone, my highest good, nothing have I, Lord, to proffer but your crimson-colored blood. Your death on the cross has had death wholly defeated, and therefore my righteousness fully completed. Salvation's white raiments I there did obtain, and in them in glory with you shall I reign. Therefore you alone, my Savior, shall be all in all to me. Search my heart and my behavior, root out all hypocrisy. Through all my life's pilgrimage, guard and uphold me, and loving forgiveness of Jesus enfold me. This one thing is needful, all others are vain. I count all but lost that I Christ may obtain. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise.